there, I'm John Ryan, and you're very welcome to the next edition of the Work Healthy Podcast. I love when people do things differently, when they reimagine a way of doing something that is better. For so long, the only way of designing a business was seen as operating as a hierarchy. Well, today's guest tried something new. Nicholas Hedden, CEO of Centiro in Sweden, decided to operate his business as a holacracy with self-managing teams. Many thought it might work in a small business when he had 60 employees, but Centiro is a leader in their industry now and currently employs over 650 people across eight countries. They're pretty unique. They have no growth targets. They have no financial budgets. They have virtually no managers as we know them, and they have very few controls. So today we get under the bonnet of Centiro and chat about sustainability, unlocking employees' skill set, building trust, inter-organisational connectivity, and the importance of FICA. I first asked Nicholas where his passion for disruption came from. I think uh, if I can only say one thing about myself, it's, it's, a, it's a core of curiosity. I've always been curious to find things out. and. I, I'm not sort of stopping until I can, and it, I always find the next question in that. So for me, when I started out in tech, which is, uh, well, about 30 years ago, uh, 25 years plus, um, I realized fairly quickly that it was never about IT or the technology itself. It was always about people. Whenever we looked at a success or something that didn't was not successful, it was always about people. That made me curious. How does this thing with people work? And 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 then started to sort of dive into that, which is an enormous space, of course. But so I would say curiosity has been my driver all the time, and it, it never ends. It's it's always there's always something more to be found out, always something surprising to to learn. Uh, so there's a curiosity and learning mindset belongs together, right? So so there's always the next thing to to explore and to see how we can uncover an idea or take it to the next step. Etc. So, but people have been at the core for what I've been doing in, in, in the last sort of 20, 30 years or so. I'm trying to remember the last time we spoke, I think you mentioned your dad did some writing uh, in this area too, did he? So has he been a big inspiration for you? I think uh, in several ways, yes. Um, so he did, when he retired, he wrote 12 books. I don't know if I'm going to repeat that feat. <laughs> wow. But uh, he was curious about what made, in this case, Swedish great companies great. So he wrote about things that we know well now, the, the flat package from Ikea, the, the Allen wrench, uh, the number of inventions that come from, and, and the roller bearing with SKF, things like that, right? So uh, he was curious to find out what was the story behind, who were the people involved and what did they do? Uh, so he was he was a journalist at heart, a trained journalist at heart, and he then went on to have several different aspects of his professional life. But I guess that what I take from him as an inspiration is to don't let the curiosity, I mean, let the curiosity carry on. If you need to call somebody to find out what happened or what's going on, just pick up the phone. Don't make it. And And he kind of, I guess both him and my mother instilled in me uh, how do you say a lack of fear to mm. contact somebody? Uh, 
which okay. means that if you work in a global setting, if you work with 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 people in various degrees, you you I'm never scared to talk to people, which is a real benefit in many, 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 many cases. So there are a number of things I take as an inspiration, but but I would say that is one of them. The fearlessness of and the thought that you can always reach out and you'll find something out. Mm. It's an interesting one because one of the things we find from talking to uh, a lot of CEOs who are running businesses is that they actually privately will tell you that it's quite an isolating role in some ways. You know, you get to the top and you can't kind of maybe have conversations with everybody that you used to have conversations with at at those relationships. And uh, they struggle to connect with other CEOs. Um, And more than ever, I think, I'm I'm sensing with the speed of change in the marketplace that they need to do that more. They need to build their network and they need to to talk, to touch base with people to find out what's what's going on. Yeah, and I talked to a I had the benefit of talking to a CIO, COO. He's he's running a, a an operation with 100, 150,000 people or so in it, so fairly substantial footprint. And I asked him, so how do you stay connected? How do you like keep yourself grounded and learn uh, the, how do you get things sifting through your fingers, so to say? And he, he then said, well, I, I, when I walk the floor and I talk to people, that's when it happens. And I think that's true. And you're absolutely right that in, in the C-level role, you can absolutely, either you have a design already or you put a, a design in place which shields you from a lot of things. Uh, so you get what I would refer to as negative filtering going on, which means that you don't really see the signals, you don't hear the signals of what's going on. And and people will then also pr- perhaps in, in sort of in good spirit, they will protect you from signals as well, which means it gets awfully dis- difficult to know what's going on if, if, if you're in that role, which is why exactly why you need to talk to people. You need to, I love to walk around. I love to just, hang out at the coffee machine and, and, and talk to somebody who's walking by and, and, and combine the formal moments with informal moments, because that's how I get in contact with what's really going on. Mm, and, and that obviously is a good lead into the, the where I would have come across you first was your, your passion for sort of saying, we got to think differently about how we do business uh, and how work gets done. And uh, that started off with a discussion around organizational design. And sort of saying, does everybody have to run a business by hierarchy? Is there another way to do it? So could you talk a little bit about your findings in that regard? Absolutely. This is this is a passion because I found out that what was a very good idea to to lay railroad tracks in, in the beginning of the 1900s across the US is perhaps not equally a good idea this century in a knowledge based industry or in other, well, a lot of industries are knowledge-based these days. It's not the same thing. So the functional divide, which the Ford factory uh, in those times became famous for, the time optimization, functional breakdown, we optimize on a functional, very detailed level, led to departments, and we can hear in the name, departments. So we depart things from each other, right? And now we're in a time where we need to collaborate for many, many reasons, uh, being an interconnected world with high speed market development is one of the key reasons I would say, and so much uncertainty going on that there is no single person who will have all the knowledge. You really need a combined set of knowledge. I think a lot of business leaders would tend to agree. And yet we have these this, this uh, hierarchy concept from, which is very, very old. I mean, it's as old as, as mankind, in fact. But if you look to more modern organizational theory, 
Hierarchy is just one of the five, six various different ways you can design an organization around. And yet it's the predominant, it's the absolute dominant when it's taught at business schools and how people are trained and grown up in, in enterprises. It's the hierarchy they see. So you get a value system where you connect competency with rank and pay and importance all combined in one concept. And that is your placement in the hierarchy. Whereas I'm a firm believer you should disconnect these. You can be equally important if you're working in an organization. You can have a different impact and role and different competency, but that doesn't have to translate to your level. Uh, I, I guess this, when you combine these things, it's easy to spin up a hierarchy, but it also you get things with that design which may or may not be beneficial to what you're trying to do. It's but it's not the only concept out there. It's, yeah, there I mean, you, you, you talked about holacracy, didn't you? Yes. So the idea of self-organizing and self-leadership based, um, which is if you think about it, so you have your military special forces is designed around that concept. The, the surgeon's operating room is definitely a concept where you need all the competence in the room to, to, to make the split second decision on what to do. So there are many places where you can actually see self-leadership um, in, in a lot of various different sort of industries, corporations, etc. And we I think what we've done is we've we've created an industrially scalable version of it. Um, but yes, at the core is self organization and self leadership and the fact that we do believe people want to do their best at work. And so fundamentally, um, when we met first, you were a much smaller organization and, and many people probably uh, when, when you joined us in, in, in Dublin for a, a speech at a conference, they were sort of seeing, you know, OK, so this is yeah, I can see how it works on a small scale. But now you've grown. I mean, how many people are you employing right now? So right now, as we speak, John, we were at um, 650 uh, colleagues in spread across eight countries. Okay. And uh, some would look at that and say, well, that's that's a fairly small organization. I would say it's fairly large. It mm -hmm. at least yep. operates 24 seven. It has a mission critical tasks to solve for all of our customers all the time. And um, we've taken it from when we met in Dublin at that time. Yeah. So we were about 60, 70 people or so. Yeah. Yeah. So so so, so this is 10 times more, right? And how, yeah. how do you how do you retain employee satisfaction, economic growth and profitability, all of those metrics at the same time while sort of working on your market leadership position? So that's an interesting problem to solve. But I, I think it shows that it can be done and we have all of the challenges that any large scale corporation would have. It's just that, I mean, we're, we're not 90,000 people yet. We're not 10,000, but yeah. we, we could definitely scale this to become a couple of thousand without problem. And that piece around the scaling, I know straight away people listening to this will kind of, because I remember the discussion at lunchtime after your uh, speech was like, yeah, yeah, at a small level, I can get it. But at a big level, I mean, surely you need to have performance management systems and you need people to implement that. And you need managers and roles and regulations and rules. But you you were sort of saying, mm, just be careful because that's many of those things are actually going to demotivate people and frustrate people and people will resent them. So how have you managed to create um, you know, a successful business in a really complex in, environment that we're operating in now by having that sort of different approach? So let's just start with um, taking one myth off, off the table here. So there is 
because people in highly regulated industries or companies would say, oh yeah, it's fine for them. They can invent whatever they want. Now let's remember that we operate on a very strict scrutiny. We have nine ISO certificates and the strictest regimes around cybersecurity and whatnot you can have and compliance at a very, very high level. So there's no, like, there's no excuse for not operating at, at the highest quality level, so to yeah. say. But it's still the fundamental question is, do we create a system based on trust or do we create an organization structure based on control? And we separated those two. So we're, we operate on the basis of trust and then somebody out there will say, well, sure, you must check every now and then, right? You can't just let people run around. Well, see, this is what we explain to our auditors and they've spent a long time looking at us. So. The fact when you distribute the ownership, so you don't have a single name in the Excel spreadsheet to say who's responsible, it's actually a very good thing because it creates a more robust ownership over any topic area. And the horror whole design revolves around one thing. If one person gets sick, it needs to move, whatever the reason is, we shouldn't fall apart, which means that there is a there is not only a redundancy, but actually a very robust ruggedness that comes with designing an organization like this. And then, uh, of course, we know where we are. We have 138 KPIs automated in a model somewhere. We can look exactly how we're performing. So it's not about not knowing, but it's allowing yourself to what controls the conversation. So first of all, let's just observe that looking at finance, then you're looking too late. And some organization would like would look at the finance metrics and I would say, well, then you're at least six to eight months late. So we're, we'd rather look at metrics that would inform you of what's going to come later. So, for example, how people are engaged and how they feel about things. Um, much more important to know because if, if they're falling in, in conviction, falling in passion of what they're doing, you will get worse economy later. Yeah. Uh, and there are people who have been studying this very closely, who have been in the finance industry for a long time and, and created what's the correlation between engagement and economic outcome. And there are actually models to suggest that that correlation is very high. Mm. So again, what we're trying to do is, is to spend time and energy on looking at the things that matter and you will get a financial outcome that is beneficial. Whereas, so in our case, finance is not the goal. It's, uh, uh, it's an outcome that comes from working with something else. And, and this sounds counterintuitive for a lot of people, but we don't do budgets, we don't set growth targets. And, and there's no such control in our system. There are other sets of knowing on if we're on track or not, but we don't drive the organization to achieve a plus 15% or whatever that could be because it's completely uninteresting. It doesn't wake people up. So we're trying to work with things that are engaging, motivating, that will also connect with what is beneficial for our customers. And, and that is then what creates the value, the growth and the outcomes. So this is the difference between lead and lag uh, indicators. Most organizations are operating with lag indicators, but uh, we'd see health as being a, a critical lead indicator that will tell you where things are going to go in the future uh, because it does play out in people's health. Um, and I, I remember that last time when you said that, that we don't have any budgets. I can just imagine finance people kind of just shaking their heads going, how is that possible? I mean, even with regard to, have you been tempted to sort of say, maybe we'll try for 10% growth this year, or you just don't put any figure down there? Nope, we don't. And it's so important to stay away from it because if you start in that end, you will drive, then you will start to drive the, uh, the organization, call it backwards. For many, that's 
still running forwards, right? But and that, I respect that. I don't. I'm not saying that. Um, I'm not suggesting that everybody should try and do what we do, but you yeah. could take some of it as inspiration. I do realize and acknowledge that there are a lot of different organizational thoughts and ideas how to do things. Mm-hmm. What I would ask as a question, as a starter for those who are listening to this, is that if you think about the fact that you have 100% energy as a sort of fuel base in your organization, how much of that are you burning to just run the thing internally? How much is spent on meetings and control systems where where you can actually question if you get any value out of it? And how much is spent in creating the real value, which for most organizations is with the market or the customer, the end user, or whoever that may be, right? So if you have a large percentage just from your general feeling that you're spending a lot of time internally just to navigate the political landscape, to navigate the control systems, then you should probably take a hard look at that and say, is this really beneficial to us? Um, so, and again, for us, it starts with the, the person. It starts with trying to get all of the energy we can out of one single person and then ask ourselves, how, what is inspiring and motivating and, and what, what story does this person want to be part of? This is why we invite our colleagues into the conversation of where they want to go because it unlocks so much power in the organization. Then and the rest then will follow. So it's a paradigm shift in in what you put first and what comes second. And and uh, it's almost annoyingly simple when you get it, but <laughs> it's 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 um, because we run without a lot of the frictions that you would see in in sort of call it classical organizations, if you will. Mm-hmm. In what way? Give me an example of those frictions. Well, since we're not doing budgets, we don't have any deviation controls on finance. There is okay. no no interest in doing that. There is an interest in understanding how value is created and, and how that that we're staying healthy. But we, we, spare, we spend almost 0% of our time in trying to explain why it didn't match up the guess we made three months ago. Um, because again, the market is fast moving. If you add, if you become serious for a minute and talk about, well, let's make a, a strategic plan November 2022 before the release of ChatGPT. Mm. Imagine that. Um, um, you would make a very different plan if you then made the plan in, in, in February, March 2023, right? So, and that's just an example. There are many macroeconomic happenings just during the last three to four or five years, which would tell you that it's almost pointless to try to have an educated guess of what's going to go on. Mm. It's, it's a lot of organizations we see with, with the customers we're working with are trying to become more agile and nimble and more following to what happens rather than trying to plan and control for it. Because ultimately there, there are forces at play which you cannot control and, and you then need to be more fluent in, in how you can follow the trends and, 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 and take advantage of, of, the, of the things that are happening rather than be a victim of what's going on. Mm. And in, in terms of um, how that plays out, in terms of managers, do you have managers in your organization? Because like, I'm just interested to know because I, the role of manager has just changed radically as far as I can see. Because um, a couple of things like, you know, a manager used to, have the the knowledge uh, or, or rather the the information and that, that controlling that information flow was a big part of a, a manager's role previously whereas now the CEOs just go direct uh, to everybody obviously previously 
there was a degree of control over time and management of people and they were right in front of them whereas now the people are obviously remote and uh working in hybrid it's a completely different way so the the powers and controls that they used to have tend to be gone so those roles i you know the manager role has to be reimagined in the world we're living in today how do you see that well, so to answer your first question, do we yep. have managers? Yeah, well, there is a title in our organization, which is delivery manager, but it's a leadership role, really. And we're trying to find a different name for it. But uh, those are the people who, who worry about a scope of about 30 people or so. Wow. And, and their job is not to be managers over that part of the organization. They do take the formal responsibilities, answering your earlier question about that. So mm -hmm. yes, we've designed formality around these roles a little bit, but their fundamental role is to make sure that the teams uh, have what they need to succeed and, and have the support they need, the inspiration they need. Sometimes they need more structure, sometimes they need less structure. That's the ultimate question. And then to your question on how does this now change? If I'm a manager, if I take the manager hat on three years ago and I take it on today, has that changed? I do think so in many, many ways. I spoke to a leader of a, a financial institute institution and during uh, the pandemic they really struggle with the mid-level managers because fundamentally to be very blunt they felt as if they were not needed because work could still happen while people were working at home mm. and their classical as you say the controls over time and all of those things kind of disappeared they had to and i do think my encouragement to to the manager out there is to think about the ways you impact people not only with your controls but actually you as a person. Uh, because if we're now working in a hybrid model, it, it you, you get to the core of why are we here? And what are we trying to do in an organization? You, you, you're stripped away from being able to, as you say, control things, right? And I think if you take a, a bigger, I, I read an article on the hybrid uh, developments in the US recently, and it's a clear message from, from people who are working in the organizations. They are not coming back and they're not coming back easy. It's going to be a hybrid uh, for a long time. And in that world, the, the manager has to ask the question, who, who do I want to be for these people and what do they need? Because the, the leadership role changes when somebody sits at their home. Some thrive from it and, and are absolutely very productive, feel well about it. But some are also exposed to risk of becoming lonely. Uh, not being able to control the, psycho the, the psychological situation where you get the benefit from having colleagues around you. You're now isolated and alone. How does that work? So I think leader, the, the manager job just in part got more interesting and, and more human centric. It has to because yeah. you, you, you're kind of, you don't have your ordinary way of just gathering people in a room and running, right? You, you need to operate on a totally different paradigm. And it's interesting because you mentioned there ChatGPT and uh, the game changer. How much has that been a game changer for, for you in your organization? It is changing us uh, in dramatic ways. And as is, so we're still playing with it, but playing in a professional way. And we can already see, and it's not only, it's, it's we mentioned ChatGPT, right? But you have various different facets of, of, augmented technology, AI and machine learning based technologies uh, that are is changing by the day. And any knowledge intense industry um, 
have benefits to, to, to gather. I mean, there are lots of questions on the table still on copyright and how things will play out. But uh, to your question, we're seeing great benefits in augmenting skilled workers uh, job. And, and it's not replacing, but it's augmenting. And it's we can cut a lot of the uh, the things that were kind of, well, perhaps mundane or took a long time to do manually, we can shortcut that, but we're not replacing the human being. We rather see is a strong uh, augmentation going on. And what where's, and where's some... the biggest impact of that for you, Nicholas? Like, can you give me a specific example of how you've been able to use AI to take out, you know, other maybe boring aspects of the job? Well, so for example, we're 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 at we're a tech company, right? So yeah, for those yeah. of you listening out there, we're, we we build software and we operate mission critical cloud services uh, and, 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 and connecting supply chain and logistics networks across the globe for high profile clients. So one of the things we don't want to do is to create problems in production. And how do we avoid that? Well, by having good tests. So when you write code, you need good tests. And this is one of the examples where, where, where chat GPT or the likes of it. So it's not only that, it's, an, it's actually a number of tools that we're trying yeah. out that can really help you, um, again, augment your skills and, and coverage by automating how tests are done. And that's without giving up uh, any sort of intellectual property or exposing ourselves to risk or anything like that. We've been able to find a model where we can actually utilize and harness the power of these tools and basically have a friend to to do the developer that can actually help you create much better tests mm. once you know what's going on. So that's a very practical uh, in your hands kind of example where previously you had to write the test or generate them yourself, but now you, you have a much stronger ally in, in AI empowered tools that can both understand the code you're writing and are able to tell you and suggest that this is this is then how I would create tests for this situation. Mm. You, you're talking to a load of CEOs all of the time. So what are you sensing? Are, are people fearful? Are they confused? Are they worried that something's going to happen that's going to undermine their business with AI? Or are they excited about the potential to bring efficiencies? How are they responding? I think, first of all, um, the awareness is now there. So again, back up to November 2022, most didn't have an awareness. We were talking about machine learning, data science, yes, but that was for most people on C-level, something that was kept in a compartment somewhere. It was a highly specialized skill that you either had in your organization or utilized or thought of utilizing, but it was contained over there. Now it's everywhere. It's on your phone. It's it's on it's on your desk. There's not a C-level person I haven't talked to that haven't used one of these tools to try things out. So the the awareness is there. And then how do you then? I guess to varying degree, people are then applying this in their own organizations. Some, some still haven't done it. Um, some have it definitely on a strategic sort of initiative track to explore, try things out, and and materialize on it. Various different degrees of that. But I think it starts with a very, very strong awareness and the fact that it's not going to be the same. And I, I, I don't see, what I don't hear at least, is, is the fear factor, so to say, right. that uh, we're done and, and this is the end of the road or anything like that. Most of them that I hear are very 
optimistic. I, I, I listened to somebody who trains CEOs in, in AI, actually, they run a circle of trainings with, with, with C-level people. And it's, uh, it's quite positive in the sense that this is a thing that will change many organizations. And I think there's right now a positive, careful appetite around it. And, and uh, so at least that's what I see and what I hear. And some have come yeah. to great lengths already in applying and doing things with it. So that's what I would encourage is to don't make it into a big program. Don't just let the organization go. I believe we have 15 or 20 different uh, initiatives going and I didn't ask for any of it. We just said that this is important. We allowed people to, to experiment and, and then we got the power of this organization going and, and now we have at least material impact in five to 10 areas that we can see already. Yeah, it's funny, you know, um, I remember the, when technology started to come into business at a, in a big way, there was a sense of, wow, you know, we'll we'll have so much free time because technology will do everything. But obviously it didn't play out quite like that. Um, you know, burnout and uh, just trying to keep on uh, ahead of the game has um, been tough over those years. But life just seems to be getting faster in every aspect. And, and AI again is, you know, because the competition is doing it too. So you've got to do it. Uh, so everything is moving faster and there seems to be a move to higher value tasks. So that that's obviously in the new world of work. That's where, you know, your people become the critical differentiator is, you know, can you give them more time to elevate themselves to be in that space where they can think, where they can collaborate, as you said, but um, create and be innovative. So what way have you kind of restructured your organization to allow that to happen more? I, uh, so right now we haven't restructured anything. We're allowing the organization we have in place to explore and, and to work with this. Will it change job roles? Yes, I think that's already in the making. And I think what we described as a job description two years ago will not be the same this year or the, or the coming year for that matter. You need a different skill set. And uh, I'll just take another example also from, from a different world than us. So I, I know a photographer very well, and he's, he's working with high profile brands, et cetera, and, and, and his work is scrutinized to a very large degree. And when he now creates his prospect, so when a client asks him for, for, a, for a job, he creates an outline. A year ago, um, AI was not sort of on the scene at all. Generative AI and photography was really not a thing. And right now, uh, any any creation he makes, AI is there. So he's using generative AI to create the backgrounds and, and the places where this product or thing that he's going to uh, take photos of exist as a suggestion. And and it's gotten so good. So his clients would say, well, actually, that was a really good picture. And that he would do. then respond and say, the problem is it's not been taken yet. <laughs> this is the picture I I'm going to take and I'm going to add my human skills to it. This is just an outline. So I think that uh, and that's just uh, the, the role of the photographer changes with augmenting with AI, right? So there are many job roles that will be augmented and changed. And for sure, I don't know what job roles we will have in, in two years time, but for sure the ones we do have are different already. Yeah, it's mad. Uh, behind you on the wall obviously is one of your values, relaxed seriousness. How do you get this balance right? Because obviously it's pretty important that we make fun or sorry, make work um, fun 
so that people can kind of connect with a purpose and get a sense of passion out of what they're doing. How have you managed to do that? So there are a couple of things going on with relaxed seriousness. First of all, it's the idea that uh, every single human being in an organization has a huge power unlock to be made. So that's the curiosity. What can we possibly do? And that comes from the relaxed part. We allow people to be themselves because the, 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 the highest end performances does not come from people being sort of squeezed into a role or, or, or a trying to behave in a certain way, it's when they are themselves to the fullest. Mm. So that's the first part. And then with that then comes seriousness. So relaxed seriousness, is a, it's not serious relaxedness. That's number one. <laughs> it comes in, the, comes in a different order. So it's our idea of how to create the conditions under which you can be at your peak more often and, and stay there for a long sustained period of time and stay in the organization for 5, 10, 15 years and still be at your peak. So it really has some, it has some nice catchiness to it, which is in the short, you can enjoy it, but it has a depth to it and a longevity, which I believe we've proven. And for the ones out there that are still confused and listening to what I'm saying, there is a lot of structure in what we do. It's just not the ordinary structure. And we also mind very carefully the balance between structure and unstructure. And at the heart of relaxedness is exactly that. So it's, it's, it's uh, making sure that each individual get the condition to succeed. And by that, we're getting more as a percentage out of a person than if we were just uh, strap uh, a job role on them and say, actually, we're only interested in the rational parts of you. 30% we can see on, on, on the desk performance. The, the, or the 60% or the 70%, whatever that number is, the rest of it, the fact that you're a musician or you love barbecuing or you're a meticulous uh, collector of flowers, whatever, we're not interested. Sorry, as an organization, we fundamentally don't care. Well, what if we started to care and understand what your true drivers are and what you really want to be good at? And if you could then unleash that into the target area, which means that the, the jobs at hand, the things we need to do to stay relevant for our customers, because again, we're not inventing the things we're doing. We're, we're, we're solving important things for our, for our clients. What if we could combine these two? That's sort of the, the curiosity and relaxed seriousness is the, the, the fundamental core of that. That's sort of the pillar on which everything stands in our organization. I love it. I mean, like uh, also you were talking about uh, how you recruit people. The thing you absolutely look for is somebody who isn't going to try and get their own success on the back of somebody else. So recruiting people into your environment is is critically important. Do you take a, a hands on approach with that still? Um, for certain roles, yes. And, and for most part, I, I don't. It's it's uh, it. My life would be unlivable if I even <laughs> tried. But so I I do trust my dear team. We still have a peer hiring scheme, which means that people who you're going to work with get, get to have a say about if you should work there or not. So we we try try to stay very relevant to our findings and the core and what we've learned throughout the years. I, I spend time with the ones where who are going to either work with me or who have may have a material impact where I can play a role in the evaluation. Yes, but for most part, I don't. So, um, but we encourage. I mean, leaders who are going to work with this person are involved. They, they we don't uh, call it allow a leader to outsource the hiring, if you will. And with outsource, I mean internally. So in many companies, you you could 
probably see a pattern where you you put I, I want to hire somebody and you put it on a wish list to go into some process somewhere and that's fine but you get a different level of involvement and ownership if you involve the person who's going to lead this person and own that relationship and yes there's more time spent in that equation a lot more time however the benefit is fluency and loss and less friction later on because you you did spend time you did add the extra attention to to somebody who's going to work here and that means a lot it means a lot for the person who who is joining it also means a lot for the people around that person one of the things that always sticks in my mind uh, with the, the Swedish approach um, is uh, Fika. Are you, are you still doing Fika? Have I forgotten yes, that right, by the way? <laughs> yeah, well, you do. And in Fika, I'll explain that in a minute. What we do have Fikas in Montreal and, and Mumbai, Pune, in, in Boston and in Barcelona. So Swedish Fika is everywhere now. And it's it's the the Swedish fika at the core is a couple of things. So first of all, there is the beverage part, which could be coffee, tea, or or whatever works in your setting. It's a little nibble of sorts. It's, it could be a, a cake. It could be something that you nibble on at the same time. But then there's a social element. That what is what creates the fika. So. And, and the fact that you do take a break from, from work. And uh, this also has two levels of depth to it. So one is, of course, the importance, well, the fun part of sitting with colleagues and having a chat. But there are a couple of serious things going on as well, uh, because especially uh, when we're now have this high pressure, almost break free world of working hybrid, where we're working through to-do lists like, like crazy, you actually need breaks more than you think. And, and it's vital to keep the, the energy going, your creativity and all that. Plus, what, what happens with the FICA is, and this here comes a sort of more formal world word, the interorganizational connectivity. Mm. So spending time with people who you not normally spend time with and have a chat with them in an informal setting does wonders to your connectivity in the, in the organization. And I think, that is one of the things that's going to miss in this whole uh, work from home hybrid uh, debate is the fact that the interorganizational relationship have shrunk in this period. And with that also shrinks innovation and other things that where you're talking about the unexpected. So FICA has a real actually has a very central point here and it doesn't have to be it's FICA because we're from Sweden and we do it in our culture. Yes, but the the encouragement for somebody to step out of their work for just a few minutes and do something else with somebody else is works wonders. Um, I love I it. And, and so how, how do you recreate that in, in a virtual world? Oh, that's not easy. I've seen all, I've seen all sorts of examples. I think we all have, right? We, we've, <laughs> I think we've seen the, the digital fikas. Uh, we still do encourage people to, to huddle up every now and then. Uh, we, we don't have a strict regime on how many days you should be at the office and how many days you, it, it's varying depending on role and what your team looks like. Yeah. The one we, thing we encourage the teams to do is to respect either everybody's physical or, or their hybrid, right? So mm -hmm. we don't want teams to go half and half. We want them to respect their environment. So if a team is physical, you, you're, you're going to have to come in. That's respecting the team. It has nothing to do with rules or policies. It's just that how do you honor the respect uh, for your colleagues, right? Um, 
And again, various in inventions I've seen, and, and anything from making it informal over Teams or, or Zoom, or, uh, but at least placing effort on doing non-work. I think that's the important part. And then whatever you do that, that gets you going is fine, right? Uh, but don't mix the work with non-work. Let, let's, let's be careful to protect the non-work because that actually builds into the work eventually anyway. It's not it's social, it's social health. Yeah, it's, it's yeah, it's, and it's you know, not so important. from a manager's perspective. It's not non-productivity. Mm. Don't label it as that. It's just that it's not your normal productivity, but it's vitally important to make the other things flow over time as well. Yeah, one hundred percent. And and I, I'm not sure if you still do it, but I <laughs> I remember every was it every Friday you used to take an hour and you nearly became a DJ yourself and you'd interview people and. You do this with your workplace all over. Do you still do that? So uh, I've done 100 episodes of Town Hall. We celebrated wow. the 100th episode Woo. just a week or two ago, which started as a thing during the pandemic. So yes, uh, every Friday or every Friday that I can, yeah. uh, I have to add, because it's not every single Friday. Um, at one o'clock, we're on air for, for half an hour or 45 minutes, whatever that becomes. And it's not your CEO newsletter of the week. It's it's we try. I try to maintain a, a entertaining format where we blend in serious stuff. Um, it's a great way to listen to guests from other parts of the organization to have them showcase what's going on in their world, so nice. everybody can see it. It's also uh, and I try to stay on point with two of my promises. First of all. It's in that forum that they will hear it first. They will not hear gossip from anywhere else in the organization. If there's something to be said, could come straight out of the boardroom, could even be before the board knows, in my case. Really? So, uh, yes, really. Uh, so the board tune in too, do they? <laughs> well, so, yeah, we run our board differently too, and that's another another <laughs> podcast. But uh, I'm straight to the point with, with my colleagues. If there's something to be said, they should know it from me first. Uh, so transparency, you can see behind me as well, and we take mm. it to we take it we take that seriously. I take it seriously and personal. The second one is that I'm always available for questions. So in this 30 minutes, so it's not so much a show where I broadcast. It's rather a well choreographed conversation, you could say, where questions come into the forum. They can be anonymous. They can be in name, uh, and it could be about anything. And and I try to as long as the question is well formed, if you will, mm. um, I'll answer everyone, every single one of them. And, and throughout a couple of years I've done this, there has only been one or two questions which I couldn't really go on air with. The rest I've answered every single one of them. And knowing that that promise is there and it's being fulfilled has created that, of course, we could see in our numbers that boosted trust uh, immediately uh, during the pandemic by eight percental units even. So it was very measurable that the trust in what we do just spiked. And it, uh, it's, it's become a tone setter for the weekend because again, as you pointed out my ex-DJ background, yes, I do get music in there. I do get stuff in there, which is works for me and works for, for the crowd, I guess. Right, I love it, I love it. I think it's, uh, everybody should do it. Um, before we come to the end, I just do wanna chat a little bit about uh, sustainability. 
because one yeah. of the things obviously um you were very kind to invite me to to speak um at um your event uh, was that i think that was last year was it um <laughs> i lose track of time um but uh, i i didn't actually get to uh, your hq because you were off site for that event but i remember you talking about it and then i went online to have a look at it and i mean like it is um, one of the, the statements we have in the Healthy Place to Work uh, assessment is whether or not the organisation is uh, an energising place to be. And I have to say, looking at it, I mean, phenomenal. Could you just talk a little bit about, you know, the importance of design, environment and sustainability as a, a driver of business today? Yeah, and I think this is this is opening in an already open door for many because post pandemic and, and how do we make hybrid work? A lot of organisations are actually changing their office footprint, they're changing the, the way it engages people. Maybe you realize that the cubicle format is not engaging and yes. people will not show up for that anymore. Uh, and rather we look at collaborative surfaces, et cetera. And we've been there for the last sort of 13 years or so. So for us, it's not new. We knew that was working all the time. And again, it follows the equation. So if people are important to what you do, then what environment do you create around them to create success? And I don't mean success in the pure, strict economic term, because that's just one element. You talked about sustainability. How do we make this sustainable for the people who work here, for our customer relations, for being innovative? In our case, we're celebrating 25 years now. How do you stay innovative in 10 years time? Well, I think the environment, you cannot, if you take environment where people work out of the equation and say it doesn't matter, you're missing out on something. For us, you can't remove it from the crime scene, so to say. <laughs> it absolutely play, plays, uh, and I'm not talking about putting gold on the walls here. I'm talking about creating something that inspires. I'm talking about when we talk to the architect, it's, it's having a census where we say, you should feel invited. You should feel like it's a vibrant environment. And most of the people who are listening, if not all of them, I'd say all of them, know what it feels like to go into an environment where you feel that something is happening here. You feel an energy and you feel something that is advancing. And, and then when you talk to skilled architects, how do you create that? Well, that sits in a ton of details for sure, but it has been the most important sentence when we talk to our architects about how, how do we create the environments is what does it do to you when you come in there? Is it a place for work only? Is it a home-like environment or is it something else? And we're on the something else part. Yes, you can find desks at our office for sure. But it's also not exactly like a home, but it's also not exactly like an office. And we're striking a balance in between, which is in, which inspires people and, and creates an energy. We And again, for those of you listening who think we're just wobbling around here, we're one of the highest performers in our industry. And there's no shortage of formalities that we follow. But it's just the way we arrive at that, which is different. And, and, and the environment is definitely sits at the core of enabling people to be successful. Not one year, not one week, not a month, but over year after year after year. Yeah, amazing. Even the hotel that um, uh, we did the speech in, um, I was using the stairwell and it was full of art. And I just sort of thought to myself, it's it's cheap, you know, um, photographs to get them blown up and put them around your workplace that inspires people. And it's it's just takes a little bit of thought and effort. But I think art definitely is the way. But um, hopefully 
hopefully, Nicholas, I'll, I'll actually visit you uh, in your uh, wonderful, sustainable um, workplace um, in the future. And just finally, um, what, what, what do you think going forward? Uh, what are the, the biggest challenges going to be? What are the most exciting things about work in the workplace that we should be keeping our eye on for the next 24 months? I think uh, on a general sort of macro observation is that we're going to still see disruption for many years to come. Whatever reason, I can't guess on the reasons, your guess is as good as mine, sure. but we will definitely continue to see disruptions in various different ways that will impact economy, that will impact the way we do business, that where we can do business and how successful we can become is going to be determined by forces that we not necessarily control. We could call that disruption if, we, if you want. Could be technological uh, disruption like uh, generative AI, for example, it's definitely on the scene right now. It's going to change a lot. So I would stay curious as to how do I create an organization and a readiness to surf the wave when it comes and I don't get drowned by it. So that, that's my sort of favorite learning from when I was a kid was that uh, a good uh, sailor doesn't ask for wind. He, he learns how to sail, right? So how do you cap, catch the wave when it comes and how do you set yourself up to be able to reap the benefits from something that is looks threatful Initially, yes, we can all be scared by it. A disruption is like that. But eventually, how do you survive that and overcome it and, 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 and still stay fresh and on top? So I would start with that sort of, I, I, well, your guess is as good as mine, but I think that's gonna be a true observation for many years to come that, that uh, disruption is gonna be on the scene, how it impacts your business, your organization, well, that's that's to be seen, right? But how do you create a readiness in your organization to tackle these things and turn them into opportunities? That's what I would look for. Yeah, I think the only way you do that is unlock the uh, the, the brains of everybody to, to help you on that journey. And that's uh, what creating the environment that you have uh, in uh, Centero. I, I just think what you do is fantastic. You're uh, inspirational. And the fact that you're celebrating 25 years uh, on uh, next week, is it, or this week later on, um, absolutely congratulations and uh, keep up the fabulous work. Thank you, John, and thanks for inviting me. And, and, and please, please come over. You need to see the place. And I promise the next time I'm in Sweden, I definitely will. Such an inspiring guest and such a, a wonderful company. In the, you know, the truth is in the new world of work, we need to rethink everything and challenge everybody to redesign systems and processes so that we can make work healthy. Thanks again to Nicholas. Up next on the Work Healthy podcast, I travel to London to meet with Harvard professor and World's Authority on Psychological Safety, Amy Edmondson. Join me when we deconstruct failure and we learn how to fail well. Until next time, stay healthy.